all the video you need in one convenient solution. QuickFrame by Mountain is the premier video creation platform that delivers high-performing content designed for every channel, audience, or objective. Through a diverse network of production companies hungry to bring your vision to life and a technology platform that connects your brand with the perfect creative collaborators, their approach has hacked the traditional production process, helping their customers create more video content than ever before. Don't you want that too? Visit quickframe.com to find out how. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today from abroad over on the other side of the Atlantic is John Evans. John is the Chief Customer Officer for System One Group. They are knee deep in the world of effectiveness, and we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the work that you're doing in behavioral science, uh, and you play in some of the hottest spaces that we are very interested in around diversity. And uh, John, you may not know this, but we're actually launching Advertising Week in Africa in February. And uh, we're super excited about it. And we have been all in on the conversation around diversity and inclusion for a very, very long time. I say this respectfully before it was popular the last few <laughs> years. So I'm looking forward to digging into that. But you have a great background, John, and an unusual one and spent a long period of time with one of the great marketers that any country has ever produced, and that's the Britvic family. So I'd love to go back to the late 90s when you were just a lad and talk about your early jobs. I think you started off as sort of a channel marketing manager for them, uh, but I'd love to start there and talk about that as a training ground. You rose up the ladder, you had a lot of gigs, with a pretty great company and a pretty great marketer. Oh, it was amazing. It's amazing training ground. And I, I tell you what, I, I, unusually for a marketer, I started life in finance, right? Which may seem odd, but actually finance training proved really super useful when I kind of got more, more senior in marketing. But you're absolutely right. I um, The only way I could convince anybody to give me a job in marketing was, was to get in on what was called category management at the time, which was kind of advice to retailers about how to manage the category. So I used my finance skills to edge my way very closely into the kind of marketing environment. And then from there, I just gradually did jumps as you, as you often do when you're trying to you know, grow your career. Started in category management, then did channel marketing, then did uh, brand management, and then did international marketing. So I had a, a wonderful run actually at Britvic. And, and as you say, they are one of the classic British kind of marketing companies. And um, I got to work on some pretty cool brands. And the, the, the most fun actually was launching new stuff. I love launching new stuff. So I got to launch some of the kind of now most successful, uh, you know, drinks brands that exist in the UK market and uh, also worked internationally as well. So got to, in fact, even got to launch some stuff in the US uh, from the UK, which is always nice to, when it goes the other way across the pond, occasionally we manage to send some stuff back to you, but uh, you know, it doesn't happen often, but once in a while we manage it. It, happen it happens quite often. You're being modest. I think there was that little, that little band you may have heard of called the Beatles. I think that's yeah, they started. did it right, didn't they? They sure <laughs> did. So let's stay where we are because it's an interesting area to mine a little bit deeper. Talk about some of those brands and that launch. Now at System One, you are knee deep and totally immersed in the world of digital transformation. 
But back then, the business of launching brands was done with a very different toolkit. Can we talk about that a little bit, John? Oh, completely. I mean, the world has changed massively, hasn't it, in the kind of 20 years or so. I mean, it really was back in the day, you would kind of personally go out and see every customer. You know, you'd have, you know, vans selling, you know, your product directly into stores. You know, uh, you know, big, big launches, you know, happened on the television on Saturday night when everyone was gathered around watching the same, you know, the same soap opera or the same kind of family show. Um, I, I'd like, I mean, maybe it's rose tinted glasses, but the playbook, I guess, back then was was far simpler. And and I guess we were all kind of schooled in, you know, the same kind of approach as well. So it, it felt easier uh, as well. You know, certainly the, the channels were less complex and uh, the discipline of making great ads, for example, was kind of more widely understood. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was quite a different time to now if you compare it to where we are, you know, 20 years later and the proliferation of channels. And, you know, you have to be an expert. At so many things now, I think, compared to, uh, you know, compared to 20 years ago. So it's quite the change. So I, I was having a conversation with somebody over the weekend about the way sports rights and things like that are going and the whole rising of the streaming world. And it seems like we are endlessly willing to cut the paper thinner to deliver a smaller, but pretend or deliver on the notion that it's a niche, hard to reach audience that we can target. Uh, first party, second, whatever, whatever party data you, you choose to embrace. Uh, back then it was a mass world, right? When you launched, you were looking for things with a big rating, with big reach, yeah. a lot of eyeballs, you know, a lot of ears, whatever it might be. Uh, I wonder, with the benefit of perspective, John, which you have, uh, uh, were we better off in many ways in terms of a launch perspective when you could sort of fire, you know, big fireworks into the sky versus a lot of little firecrackers? Do you know what? If I, hopefully this isn't fudging the answer, but I think there's a best of both, right? I, I think what we knew then was that actually the audience was nowhere near as tight as you might like to think. Because every marketer sits down and goes, my target audience is this person. They live in this area. They drink this coffee. They read these particular magazines. And um, the danger with that is you forget who actually buys you. And what you find out when you do the research is the people that buy you are not often the people you think that buy you. And uh, I mean, we, I mean, I, I worked in soft drinks. So it's not particularly targeted, but even we used to get fixated with 25 to 35 year olds who, you know, lived in urban areas, for example. And then when we actually looked at who does buy us in reality, you know, the grandparents and kids and, you know, people from all over the country. So, uh, and this is where mass, mass, you know, market advertising is so good because you net the wastage quote unquote that you might generate from not being particularly targeted actually has a, a huge benefit, you know, to the people. And of course, now we're so much more sophisticated in our targeting, but we don't have that benefit of the, of the wastage that we, you know, used to enjoy back in the day. And I think the other dynamic that we've lost today as well is that actually the better you're advertising, the less targeted you should be because part of the power of advertising is people talking about it and, and the feeling that everyone's had the same experience they've seen. So, you know, back in the day, 20 years ago, you and I would be chatting at the coffee machine about, oh, do you see that advert from the, you know, from Budweiser? That was amazing. And, and actually that, that's how word of mouth started. And I think ultra targeting now, we've lost that kind of sense of conversation and buzz and, you know, wastage that actually is a positive thing, you know, when you, when you try and build a brand. Yeah. I think the only thing really that's left that drives that live mass audience is live sport. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and now we're going to see the next 
you know, generation of craziness with rights fees. You're already seeing the NFL on Thursday nights in America is now on Amazon, right? That's a very different play. That's never happened before. You've got baseball on Apple uh, as well as Amazon. So it's all uh, uh, fascinating. But I I wonder if we haven't lost, and maybe this is just, you know, gone with the wind, but some of the romance of the craft and talking about the, the creative. You remember John over here, and I'm sure it's the same for the European Championship and the World Cup. It used to be that the ads would be kept quiet, secret, right? The Super Bowl yes. ads would, yeah. and now they're all released purposefully before across social channels. But uh, where do you get more buzz? Doing it that way or the old way? I, I, I wonder. Well, that's that. That's a brilliant question. I mean, I, I met Sir John Hegarty, who was the founder of the iconic, yeah. you know, BBH in London. He talked about the Levi's ad they created back in the early '80s, which was their founding, you know, their founding brand that they worked on. And they sold. It wasn't just about the jeans, but they sold music. You know, they sold boxer shorts off the back because the ad that they created was so in in tune with popular culture at the time that, that you know that we were all talking about it you know I, I remember going out and buying boxer shorts having you know off the back of seeing the ad and, and i think that's a power that advertising may have had back then that you don't really have the same you don't see the same kind of influence on popular culture um that that maybe it had back in you know back in the 80s and 90s and that's a shame i think because i mean there's there was no doubt that there was a real craft you know i mean ridley scott for example you know you know famous hollywood director of course right he started out making ads like apple 1984 you know i mean we're talking about that ad 30 something years later and that's the power of the craft that i don't think we see in the same way today yeah, there are definitely less creative stars. Sir John is one of them. In fact, I raised his name recently because I think in America, we still have Jeff Goodby. You know, I think Jeff yeah. is still really at the top of his game. You know, David Droga is a younger guy. I certainly think, you know, creatively, tremendous reputation. I'm sure I'd be flattered to hear that I called him a younger guy. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a few others, but there's just not a lot of creative stars, you know, anymore. Uh, and I think that that some of that is you know, lost in the digital laundry, if you will, or, or been washed by it. Um, uh, yeah. Well, we're giving ourselves a good inadvertent or purposeful. I, I don't know if either of us is clever enough uh, to it for it to be purposeful, John, certainly not me, but a great setup for what we're going to talk about, about system one and the work that you do around the power of emotion, because that's really at the core, I think, of what we're both saying. And that's what great mm. adver- advertising does. Um, okay, so before we get there, let's just stay with your journey a little bit longer. You also work for a company that I love. It's I refer to it as the Gatorade of the UK uh, when I am uh, thirsty on the uh, ninth or tenth hole uh, after another abysmal round of uh, golf with more abysmal golf to follow. But you work for LucasAid, which is a great, great company. It is it, amazing. I, I mean, it, 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 we've described it perfectly. It, it's the gate. It's the Gatorade of the UK. It's a it's a brilliant brand. It's one of those one of those brands that everybody grew up with. It, it's funny. It started out as a medicinal brand. Right. So it was invented in the 1920s, actually, by you know, a physician a uh, chemist trying to help kids recover after surgery in hospital. And he, he worked out the optimum amount of gluco- glucose in order to help, you know, uh, kids recover and had amazing success rates. And then he partnered with someone else because it didn't taste very good. So he, he partnered with a, you know, a, a soft drink manufacturers go, how do you make this taste good? And the combination of 
you know, a glucose drink and one that tasted good. It's a bit like the original Gators story, you know, it, you know, that helped help the team succeed in the second half of games. You know, it's a very similar sort of insight to that, the functional, you know, and, and great taste. And it's a brand that's just, you know, so well known in the UK and so embedded in society. And everyone can tell you the story of when they're ill and they, they took it and they recovered. And it was a, a real honor to work on it. And, um, you know, I only had a few years, but it was, it was, a real privilege and uh it's amazing to you know be entrusted with a brand that's just so embedded in culture and everybody knows and you know you you, you take a step wrong on it and you get told straight away you know because you know you change you, you tweak something very slightly and then you know immediately you've got thousands of people on twitter talking about it so it's uh it's a very very powerful brand but uh yeah one i look i look back on that time very fondly great great stories john uh there's also an evolution as you're starting to wind down there into sort of a CMO guru, if you will. Um, and you take on a different persona. Can we talk about the evolution of that and where that sort of comes from? It's an interesting platform to build one that you still have. Uh, and then I want to start getting into all the great stuff that's happening at system one group, but let's just talk about this little yeah. part of the journey as well. Well, it's a funny thing, you know, I, I mean, we like to look at our careers and life and assume it was all planned out perfectly. And it kind of, you know, as we sort of tick the box through life. But you know, it's one of those things that I, I had, a, had a particularly challenging year. I, I left LucasAid. I went to work for BrewDog, um, which is my basically my the most iconic brand. I, I was a massive fan of what BrewDog did. Uh, only stayed there three months, decided very quickly I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to. Uh, it wasn't the right place for me for, for, for a number of reasons. But then, you know, I find myself, you know, fairly seasoned, you know, marketing director, CMO, always worked in drinks. Um, suddenly find myself out of a job in a very difficult period of time where there's not a lot in the market. There weren't many jobs out there to in the kind of area I wanted to do. So I ended up freelancing, something I never thought I'd do. And um, as part of my freelancing, actually, uh, this will bring us to System One. They, I used to be a client of theirs, and they phoned me up and they said, "John, will you come out to Cannes for us and be on one of the panels that we're running about what makes advertising work?" And it was funny, it was a funny experience actually, because I, I got interviewed by CNBC down on the beach because they were trying to find CMOs to talk honestly about what they thought of Cannes, and you know. I, I was out of a job at the time, so I was perfectly happy to tell them exactly what I thought, which is basically the one person not at Cannes is the customer, right? Unless we get the customer at Cannes, we're going to continue patting ourselves on the back and talk about what we think is important, not what the customer thinks is important. Anyway, bless, it, bless him, James from CNBC. When he, when he, when he, started, when he cut, the, uh, cut the live recording, he said, damn it, man, you're the first uncensored CMO I've spoken to all week. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. That that's quite a nice title for a podcast. I thought I like that. And actually, what I realised is, you know, I, I've been media trained within an inch of my life in my career. I, I I've been put out there talking to media on behalf of LucasAid, for example, about the amount of sugar we have, and everything I've said has had to be scripted. And every answer I give and any interaction had to be controlled to meet certain, you know, certain messages and land certain points. But actually, as an independent guy i was able to say whatever i liked about you know what i thought of can and you know and i i thought wouldn't it be great to have a podcast that shared you know the the marketing experts opinion you know the cmos what it's actually like that unfiltered you know un unkind of censored and that was the idea for the podcast really so it and it was a brilliant way for me to meet 
industry experts, you know, senior level marketers, client side, and understand how they do their jobs. And what I wanted to do really was make, you know, insight into how marketing works available for everybody. So that if you're coming into the industry, you're junior or you want CMO level, want to get better, you could access some of the best brains on the planet. And as a media, podcasting is just incredible, isn't it? I mean, obviously I'm telling you this, you know this, but it what an amazing way to share knowledge and inspire people and and i love getting all the feedback from episodes i do it's just there's nothing quite like getting some great feedback where you've in fact funnily enough i i i kind of jokingly said in an episode my ambition is is to make people want to throw their job in and, and and go and you know do a startup or something and then i actually got a message from someone inspired by your podcast i've quit my job and i'm gonna gone and i've gone and founded a company and i just think brilliant you know that hearing how it's changed people's lives is is something that will never i'll never tire of uh, making me making me smile uh, and uh, i love your podcast you've had some great great guests um, I think you just had KFC, the CMO on. Yeah, yeah, was amazing. Yeah, I know you had uh, the CMO on Nat West, which is another great brand. What was your favorite moment? I, I'll give you mine, but give me your favorite, you know, your favorite guest, your favorite moment, because you've got a pretty good body of work going there too. Yeah. Well, my, my favorite actually was uh, Nils Leonard from Uncommon. And, and I tell you for why, because the, the well, the passion Uncommon have got about seeing brand, well, inventing brands you want to see in the world is, is kind of their ethos as, as an agency. And I love how much they want to change, you know, change the world. And I, what I tell you what it was, it's funny because you don't always know what's going to touch you emotionally, but it's the story of the risks they took how committed they were to leaving, you know, the WPP empire and going it, going it alone. It really resonated with me. And as I look back on my career, sometimes I wish I'd been bolder and back myself and made the jump sooner. And I think it was just the parallels to my own life that, that really kind of triggered those thoughts inside me. So it wasn't necessarily the content. Um, it was the way he told the story and the kind of how it resonated with me personally, that sort of inspired me to think, you know what, you know, if you're sat there thinking, shall I make the jump, then go for it. You know, what's the worst that can happen? There are so many people out there that want you to succeed so much, you know, so many ways you can get help. So yeah, that was the one. Fantastic. Yeah. I think mine might've been one of the more recent ones actually, which was Graham Nash. And it was a combination of him telling the story of when he, David Crosby and Stephen Stills first sang together on one hand and on the other politically saying very confidently that uh, America is in a irreversible decline. <laughs> and I, and I mean, dumbfound, <laughs> yes. dumbfounded to counter him. Um, okay, back, yeah. to you, back to you, John. This That's is about, this is I about you. That. I love it. <laughs> this, is a, this, is, this is your show, not mine. So let's talk about um, a natural evolution. And it goes off what you just said about Uncommon. And that's commitment to using business to drive a force that can be bigger than business. System one has an inordinate and seemingly very serious commitment to the diversity and inclusion issue that we are facing as an industry globally, mm -hmm. that all industry is facing globally. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is, is that in senior leadership ranks in particular, most businesses do not look like what the world looks like. So yep. let's talk about where the origin of that commitment comes 
uh, to System One and talk about some of the specifics that you're doing, including the recent um, feeling seen study, which uh, uh, we find just fascinating. Yeah, no, no, very happy to do that. And, and look, you know, I mean, the events the last three or four years, have, I'm sure, you know, impacted on all of us. And look, over in the UK, you know, we had similar responses, you know, after George Floyd in that year. And, and there were a couple of events, actually, that were you know, very um, specific in the UK. But there was, a, there was a couple of things that really struck me. One was um, that there's a, there's a group called, actually called Diversity. It's a dance group in the UK. And they, they, we have a talent show, Britain's Got Talent. And they were one of the very original winners of the show. And uh, they're hugely well known. In fact, um, Ashley, who's, who set it up, is now one of the judges. So um, very, very popular. And they are very diverse themselves. And um, they did a dance in response to the events that happened with George Floyd. And it was incredibly powerful. I mean, it was one of the most powerful, you know, shows that, you know, has ever been on TV. And yet it attracted lots of complaints. And there was a there was a bit of a backlash on social media to the extent that ITV, the broadcaster, had to put out an advert saying we stand with diversity and we are. 100% behind them. That was the, that was the first event that that kind of caught my attention to go what's going on here why is there such a reaction to what should be a positive thing. Um the next thing was um, at Christmas time it, it, Christmas is our super bowl right in the UK. So Christmas is when everyone's making the big ads. John Lewis ad is the you know John Lewis is the kind of trailblazers of it, right? Uh, Sainsbury's um big advertiser in the UK they they're the sort of number 3 grocery store chain. Um they had a series of ads, but that they had a very traditional ad with a black family celebrating a very traditional Christmas, right? And it attracted a huge amount of complaints with ITV to the extent that, um, sadly, a lot of people on their care customer care line had to get counselling because of how strongly people were complaining, and they were saying this doesn't represent England, and and, and, this, and it was it was desperately you know upsetting to listen to. And ITV phoned me up and they said, look, you, you at System One you know how advertising works you know how people respond to actually respond to advertising have we got a problem with this advert or or you know or how do we respond and it so i thought you know what you know I, i'm in a privileged position because at system one we have more data on how advertising works than anyone else in the world and particularly in the uk and in the us in fact because we test every ad that goes on tv goes on youtube goes on a number of channels so we have the results we also collect tens of thousands of verbatim responses to the advertising i can go and see actually what people are saying about that sainsbury's ad in real time because we've got all the data so i went and had a look at it and what really encouraged me was actually the ad in question was very well liked by the british public there, there was no racism there was no there was no backlash and what had happened is that this is where social media can be an evil because a few people, a very tiny minority of people, very bigoted people had decided to make, to create this huge kind of backlash and create, you know, create all this noise. Um, and it was terrible to watch. And I didn't want, what I did, what I, what I noticed happening was CMOs were calling me up and saying, is it risky for me to have diverse, you know, have a diverse cast or tell a diverse story in advertising? Because they were looking at social media going, is this now a risk, risk to my brand? And that is terrible. I mean, we don't want, I mean, that would be an awful outcome, wouldn't it? That would set us back, not set us forward. So what I decide is I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to see what the UK public really think of diverse advertising. So what I decided to do was test originally 30 ads amongst the general population and also the diverse audience. And I wanted two things to happen. I wanted to A, C, how do people feel 
when they see themselves in advertising. Because actually, when you see yourself in advertising, you tend to feel a greater level of warmth. You feel, you, well, you feel seen, as we, as we called the report. But what was it as important to me is I wanted to see how does everyone else feel when they see people that maybe aren't like them? They're not as used to seeing advertising. How do they feel? And do they really object to that kind of advertising? And what I've basically found, which is what I hope to find, and I'm really, really pleased that I did, was what we call a diversity dividend. So actually, that diverse advertising actually unites the population rather than divides it. And, and what happens is social media is the thing that's dividing us. But actually, when people see people not like them in advertising, as long as the story is told well, it enables us to see into someone else's life. And so what I was able to demonstrate is actually diverse advertising sees an uplift over non-diverse advertising. And it's not just the right thing to do from a you know moral perspective, but the magic with system one, you know, apart from being able to demonstrate that was what our approach does is it can predict the market share impact of your advertising by measuring how powerful the emotion is, how likely people are to go on and recommend your brand or buy your brand. And I was able to show that not just is it the right thing to do, but commercially, it's also the sensible thing to do because you end up appealing to more people uh, rather than less people by, by doing diverse advertising. So that was the origin story. And then, of course, you know we're, we're a global business, but US and UK are our two biggest markets. I then wanted to do the same thing again in the US. And I'm really pleased, actually, the results are even better in the US than they are in the UK. So, you know, advertisers listening can have real confidence that, that it's not a zero sum game where, you know, you feature a diverse story that you only appeal to that group. If you tell a story well, you can appeal to everybody. And that group will feel even better because they see themselves seen. And that was really the, the headline message we want to get, you know, through the Feeling Steam report. Okay, so this is uh, really good stuff, and uh, let's take it in a in a hard, even harsh direction. Over here on this side of the Atlantic, America is going through a real reckoning. A lot of it is driven by race. Yeah, and what Trump really did was he made it okay for a lot of stuff that was buried below the surface to bubble to the surface. He also showed how the crazy small voice receives the same amplification as a sane grounded voice. And both on the right and the left, fringe voices became mainstream. Let's talk a little bit more about the disconnect between what the majority of us think, including not only on issues around diversity, John, but we're going through it now on the abortion issue in America. Yeah. The, the Supreme yeah. Court is now back. Their last uh, session was pretty juicy. And I've never read a series of articles like I read today. It was almost like it was a preview of the next season of Real Housewives, you know, that it's going to be really spicy, you know, watch this next, you know, round of the Supreme Court of America as they roll back, you know, protections and freedoms. And, and I reveal my politics here quickly. But most Americans, they say, are in favor of a woman's right to choose on it by a pretty healthy margin. It's either 60 or 70 some odd percent, I think. You'll, you'll, you'll probably know the ex exact number. Talk about that disconnect and the role that social media is playing in really whacking up the whole system. 
that look, you've hit the nail on the head. And, and th this is exactly what we are trying to respond to because what, what happens with you know, the algorithm is driven by extreme responses and promoting division and, and pushing out ne you know, negative agendas. And so, you know, what I was desperate to advise advertisers is don't make your strategy decisions based on Twitter, because if you do, you, you will really, really go in the wrong direction. And so what, the, the, what, what we do at System One is, you know, we measure how real people think and feel and what the mass market think. And, th and that's really what we've built our, our business on. So what I, what I saw happening, um, you know, two or three years ago, which is even more in the US, I think, than the UK. I mean, I think we're just a, a, a smaller version of, of what you're experiencing is that enormous division. And it was creating, it was creating fear, but it was creating conservatism as people were afraid to, you know, make work in advertising that would speak to some of this right people were afraid to do it and they because they were worried about the social media backlash and you know I, you know i've been a client side cmo and i've sat there made a decision and, and then seen the twitter response and then my ceo is on my back going what are you going to do about it you know you're going to take this down or you're going to you know it, you know stop doing it or whatever and that's really dangerous because the very vocal tiny minority do not represent the majority of people I, I don't think in the UK or in the US. And so what I wanted to put out there was basically the evidence-based response or the evidence to how pe real people actually feel, if you take diversity as an example, how real people feel about diversity in advertising. And actually you can have enormous confidence. I'm not saying, by the way, it, it's always done well. There are examples in our report where it's not done well. So the other thing I wanted to do as well, as well as give the proof that actually it's the right thing to do, and give the evidence for that. I also wanted to, you know, bring case studies where it's done brilliantly so that nobody has got an excuse not to do it. Because, because you know, you might go, well, yeah, I buy that, but, you know, we just haven't got the expertise or we don't understand the audience well enough. You know, there are lots of excuses people give for not doing it. And I wanted to take those excuses away by going, this is how you do it. You know, it, you know, do the research with the diverse audiences early. You know, bring, you know, tell someone's story very well. So one of the, one of the insights I really uh it really rung home to me actually was uh we came up with this idea that it's better to tell one person's story well than try and represent a group badly and so what we found is even though you might be what you think you might be telling a story of a very niche group actually storytelling is it's most powerful when it helps us see into someone else's life that we don't normally see into it's what a good film or a good book does right it brings you into someone else's experience and enables you to have a connection with them and understand their experience in a way you didn't before um that's much better than advertising that tries to tick boxes tries to have right we're going to have every single demographic represented in 30 30 seconds you know what i mean so that kind of advertising falls a bit flat because people can sense it's not authentic and what i encourage and what we encourage in system one through this study is be authentic, tell stories of one person rather than try and you know, tell a group story badly and celebrate people as well. The other thing we, we, we learned in the report is it's quite easy to be drawn into the issue, the struggle, as you know, some people call it, and emphasize what's you know, the pain of a particular situation. Instead, we should celebrate what's great about that particular culture, people's achievements, their triumph, you know, show what's amazing about, you know, uh, about you know being that particular in, in that particular minority rather than focusing on the thing that they're they may be struggling with and you know may have been a painful issue for them in the past so there was a wonderful story last night about sia khaleesi
on uh, one of our news programs, 60 Minutes, who was the first ever black captain of the Springboks for South Africa. And I see you nodding and smiling. Yeah. I guess that was a difficult loss. Well, you're a Wales guy, not a, not an England guy. Yeah, but yeah. Was, it was a difficult loss in the 2019 <laughs> Rugby World Cup. For, Used to uh, it, don't worry. Used to for, it. <laughs> for, for England, not for Wales, but for England. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I had been to Six Nations, by the way. I absolutely loved oh, it. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah it's, it's quite an experience. Absolutely yeah. loved it. So Sia, the first black captain, uh, the Springboks, historically, the pride of in the apartheid days of the Afrikaners mm. and the captain of the Afrikaner team from long ago was in the segment on Khaleesi talking about how wonderful it was and how it brought the whole country together and yeah. that contrasted with victories pre the fall of apartheid that were only celebrated by the white Afrikaans that when South Africa won in 2019 with a mixed race team led by a black captain, they were celebrating in the townships also and everywhere in between. Brands seem to sort of get it. And I, and I have a follow-up question to ask about there in a minute, but why doesn't our government get it? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Well, firstly, can I just say, your story perfectly encapsulates basically why diverse advertising works because mo most people celebrate like, like you say with you know you know that with the spring box there being you know a diverse team for the first time and winning that story is perfectly encapsulates why advertising works in that way and and adidas actually did an ad uh, about that which got five star um they also did an ad featuring beyonce as, as she kind of rose to fame nike have done the ad showing that you know that the williams sisters transforming the face and experience of tennis you know and, and what we see on our testing is that those stories well told, everybody celebrates, everybody can see, even if you're not represented. I mean, there's one, um, there's one, one of my favorite Nike ads actually in the, um, in the test we did uh, had mostly black pregnant women exercising through childbirth. And um, it was amazing. And uh, Ade Rawcliffe, who's the director of diversity, uh, an inclusion at ITV who helped help with the making of the report. She said as a, as a black woman herself, she'd never seen a pregnant black woman in an ad before. And it really touched her. Now, the amazing thing about the ad is I felt chills down my spine watching the ad and, but she felt me even more. And, and that's it because, you know, we can all celebrate, you know, someone's achievement, but those people that haven't seen themselves reflect in advertising will feel that even more. So I love your story about, about rugby. I think it's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant example. In terms of government, I, I, I don't know. I think maybe it's the way politics has been created to become tribal. And the incentive is to try and go to the extremes to, to, to try and make your, you know, your opposition, to try and outflank your opposition. So it kind of somehow forces this tribalism that actually with advertising, your role is to unite people, is to appeal to as many people as possible, to, to you know, to exaggerate what, you know, what experiences we share do you know what i mean and i think politics is set up in the opposite direction it's to try and exaggerate those things that separate us rather than unite us yeah this is such a tough one and societally now you know we're coming up on the midterms and mm. you know the the continued day-to-day -day craziness I, I mean not a day it's been over two years now not a day goes by when the New York Post doesn't have some article talking about Hunter Biden's laptop. And I, I, I don't really care. 
And I think most people don't really care. By the way, the same paper, you know, never talked about, you know, in a negative way about Don Jr. and Eric and that genuine nepotism that was harmful to the country. I mean, that Jared went out and got a couple billion dollars out of MBS to run his private equity fund that he opened up as soon as the White House door slammed, you know, behind him, having never run a private equity, uh, you know, before. And here's two billion. Don't tell me that's not a thank you for protecting my ass. Of course it is. Yeah, I think this is the funding model, though, isn't it? Because you know their the, their the, their models based on number of clicks and their the, the amount of advertising they can sell. They know that Biden. It's the same. We find the same strangely in the UK with Meghan Markle. We're obsessed with Meghan Markle, and so what you find is a story about what she wore yesterday with Prince Harry to the funeral of the Queen will be top of like loads of social media fees because of the model, the way it's funded being based on clicks and advertising revenue is for is, is basically exacerbating this negative, this negative cycle of, um, of news, which is desperately sad. And this is why, I mean, you know, I guess coming back to the feeling scene point is that I wanted to correct for that to tell advertisers that don't base your, you know, base your creative strategy on, on a, on an ad funded negative, clickbait um you know news cycle that has been set up you know for all the wrong all the wrong reasons great uh, this is a, this is a good conversation john so we're then left with brands in sort of the lead position the pole position if you will if this is a, a motor car race um to help on issues that transcend business but you have businesses that are run by boards of directors that are often publicly listed companies where there's enormous pressure on profitability. Paul Pullman proved that Unilever, that you can run a good business and also do good in that case for the planet along the way, that doing good can also be good for the bottom line. Talk about your take on that as it relates to diversity or any litany of issues where brands are getting more active. And is there an inherent conflict or is it an opportunity where business and purpose cross, yeah. path, cross paths? Uh, Joe, I think like a lot of questions that there's not quite a binary answer because I think you've, you've kind of got two camps. You've got the, we must all be about purpose. And then in the other camp, you've got, we're all about business and therefore purpose is a waste of time. And I think both sides kind of, you know, play off each other. So, I think the thing with purpose is it, it's it's really important to find out what are you on earth to do, right? What what do you as a brand as a business? What is it you're here to do? Is it you know make your your you know make um, it easier to buy or you know or whatever you know or, or refresh the parts other beers don't reach or whatever? So you know it's about finding so finding your purpose is really important, but you also have a responsibility. Um, you know, to do good in terms of, you know, pay people the right wage. Where do you source things from? You know, uh, are you being responsible with the resources? And I think, I think, whereas, you know, five or 10 years ago, that was a nice to have. I think what's encouraging is that investors are a lot more switched onto that. And we're, we're aware that the resources on the planet are finite. And we're aware, we're, you know, we're facing a, a climate crisis coming down the track. And I think people will be judged very differently tomorrow. I mean, I was talking actually in a recent episode on the, on the podcast about what's your clean share of market, right? Which I thought was a really interesting concept because at the moment, 
a lot of our shares of market are fairly dirty. You know, they're, they're, you know, they're fueled by oil in, in lots of cases. But what if you could work out what's my share of the clean future? Because actually, you know, any, any investor is not going to you know, worry about your past performance. They're going to worry about your future performance. And therefore, thinking 5, 10, 15 years ahead is good business. And I think the smart brands are already on starting to make themselves, you know, kind of fit for the future. I think where purpose doesn't always work is when it's um, purpose has to be authentic and authentic, not just to your brand in terms of being relevant to your brand, but also authentic in the way you deliver it. And this is where you can come unstuck with diversity is that if you're not if you're not actually delivering it in an authentic way, people can spot that very easily. So. This is where some brands, I think, get criticised because they, you know, they might only do uh, the Black Lives Matter thing on, you know, on the day, and then they'll, you know, then rest of the year they're doing something else. So if you're going to do it, you've got to be authentic and you've got to fully commit to it. And I think that's where, that's where people get unstuck is when they don't follow through with what they say. Like, you know, because because we can all, you know, we can we've all got a nose for for hypocrisy, haven't we? As as consumers, and it's it, you can smell it a mile off. We, we sure do. And I was glad to see on your site, John, that you also have efforts focused on the Hispanic audience. Uh, I'd imagine in the UK that it's beyond the black audience as well. Yeah, it's, it, I mean, there are some subtle differences between US and UK. So for, for us, the equivalent of the Hispanic audience would be um, the Asian audience. So we've got a very you know, well-established Asian culture in the UK, representing about seven to eight percent of our population. That's probably the equivalent of Hispanic in the US. But yeah, there, there, there are there are definitely populations beyond uh, beyond the black population. They're important because I mean, it's interesting actually. Um, if you take Asian, uh, this might I think this is similar for Hispanic. Is uh, traditionally quite underserved, particularly. So although uh, you know, most advertisers would probably lead in their diversity efforts with it with a black cast in advertising or tell a black story but actually we find it's very rare to see asian stories uh told well through advertising as well in fact it was the and what we noticed in the research we did that um the biggest uplifts came when asian audiences saw themselves in advertising because it was such a rare event and i think that's fairly similar with hispanic audiences in the us as well so it is important actually that the clues in the title, right? Diversity. You know, it is important that actually diversity does look beyond some of the obvious, um, you know, obvious segments and, and goes beyond that. Yeah, no, we, we share that view. And the Hispanic population in the U.S. is actually larger than the black population and is the fastest growing. Um, yeah. And uh, last year, as part of Advertising Week, we did a big event post-George Floyd at the Apollo Theater in Harlem, which is the most meaningful place in black culture in America. And we had Mary J. Blige on stage. It was a benefit for the Nelson Mandela Foundation and was tied to our ambition and our plans for Africa, where we'll be launching in uh, 2023, as we discussed before we went on the air. Um, but I, I love what you're doing across the board. I think the uh, feeling scene is terrific. I'm happy to help amplify that in a good way, um, any way that we can. Let's wrap just by sort of really focusing in on system one as a brand because you have a very powerful platform that you've created again primarily uk and us you're doing really industry leading work the brand is not as big as i think it should be uh, uh and, well, and that, i'd and, agree with you <laughs> and and and, uh, and i think what you're doing to package 
and enable folks to understand the power of emotion and really, you know, dig deep on effectiveness. So important. Yeah. Uh, I want to see you guys become a bigger player. Thank you. I, well, we do too. I, look, I mean, the, the, the very, the, the elevator pitch is just, you know, there's, there's something crazy like a trillion dollars spent on advertising globally around, you know, around the world. And, and yet uh, we, we, we estimate based on all our testing, about 50% of it is wasted. So the amount of money that gets spent on advertising that is literally poured down the drain is obscene. It, you know, you could fund a lot of the problems in the world just by using the money that's wasted on advertising. So, so what we're in business for is to give the tools to advertisers to never make a bad ad again. And there is no excuse for it because what we've done with our platform is we've made it really quick. So in you know, as little as three hours, you can test your ad. We've made it relatively low cost. I mean, very low cost relative to the amount of money you might spend on the advertising. It'll be a fraction of the cost. And we've designed the platform so that the reports that get generated are really easy to work out. And what, um, what, what we do is we can predict the short and the long-term impact of your advertising. And so what the report will do is very simply tell you whether it's got short or long-term potential and how to make the ad better. And we can compare your ad to tens of thousands of ads in the database. So let's say, for example, you're a credit card company, for example, and you want to see how does my ad compare to every other credit card company? We've got all the data there so we can quickly benchmark it and make sure that your ad stands out amongst the, the tens of thousands of credit card ads that go out there every single day. So, you know, there's no excuse to make a bad ad ever again um, would, would be our contention. But you're right. We've got to make ourselves a little bit more famous. We've got to, we've got to do what we preach and, and know, make our own advertising better, right? Well, we'll see what we can do to help you. But John, thank you. <laughs> exactly. th thanks so much for doing this. This was, uh, I would say on my end, an unexpectedly enriching conversation. And I, I enjoyed it. Uh, uh, I say this only respectfully, much more than I thought I would. Right. Well, that's as I think, I uh, hope you enjoyed it too. It didn't torture you too much. And uh, thanks to your team for putting us together. I really appreciate the opportunity. My pleasure. Creating videos has traditionally been expensive and time-consuming, but that's not how QuickFrame by Mountain does things. They've streamlined production to deliver a faster, more efficient way to produce videos at scale. Their platform matches brands with a highly curated network of production companies and content creators to ensure you have the best creative partner to produce videos that resonate with your target audience. Are you ready to get all the creativity without any of the baggage? Get started at QuickFrame.com.